eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, welcome to the NASCAR NBC podcast. Nate Ryan, your host, back here with a guest edition of the podcast. Parker Kligerman joining us today. And Parker is a NASCAR NBC analyst. He is a race car driver. He is an entrepreneur. Uh, and I want to get into all of that, Parker. But first, I want to start with esports, iRacing, which has been a big part of your life recently. And I'll confess, as an out-of-touch Gen Xer, I'm trying to keep up with what you and Landon are tweeting about on a seemingly daily basis about everything going on with Kligerman esports and all the other stuff that's happening. But I'm not doing a very good job. So I know there was a lot of stuff happening this week with Team iRacing, and there's a lot of stuff you and Landon have been doing recently. You can just <laughs> give me the overview. Yeah, so Landon Castle and I started eraser.gg, which is a company we formed last year during the pandemic because he came to me and said, hey, man, I want to make the biggest events in iRacing, and I want to start off with this with a Firecracker 400. This is right around the 87 car being released. We have the Legacy Daytona. And I was like, hey, man, you had me at hello. Um, and so this started, you know, this started a path for us to investigate how to make these massive events and to pay huge prize pools and to design them in a way that isn't possible, particularly in the real world. And that's sort of our ethos for everything we do in those, uh, you know, so our ethos is always do, to do what real racing can't or won't. And that's why, you know, we both believe in sim racing, because it offers the ability to do those things at a high level. So this was uh, our second firecracker, second annual Blue Emu Firecracker 400. Dale yeah. Jr. <laughs> made it in to the final one. And this was our biggest event by far. And, you know, we wondered after the, last year during the pandemic, first one, the 87 cars just released. It was big. It was the biggest event at the time. 344 competitors we were like, eh, will this one really get the same attention? It blew our expectations out of the water. Competitors, we had over 425 competitors, over 430 actually, making it easily the largest independent event in iRacing history. You know, we had a the massive viewership and on social, our numbers at the end were plus 30 million impressions across for the whole hashtag. So it was just huge. And that was really cool to see. So we were, we were blown away. And I think we look at doing four events in a year that we can possibly do. And then other avenues that we can be a value add to the sim race community with eraser. And we're sort of building that community and we'll see where it goes. So we've given away as of this last one, we will have given away $52,500 in prize money over four events. Basically. Would you attribute the popularity the demand, the interest do you think it's pandemic related? Do you think it's NASCAR iRacing and what happened there related? Just the general growth of esports iRacing in general? Like, or have you even thought about like how to kind of quantify that? <laughs> uh, you know, I think last year we absolutely believed it was the pandemic, right? And then we wondered this year, would we get the same response? Everything's opening up. It's summer. Like yeah. back, the world's back. Why would anyone pay attention to the sim racing event? But it was bigger than ever. And so it has more interest. And I, I'm just become a huge believer of, of my entire viewpoint on all this stuff is, is shifted. And that is that, you know, whatever happened during the pandemic, what's happening with F1 that's having a moment in America, I just believe there's a, and with what we showed with iRacing during the pandemic and how it can relate to real racing, there is just a euphoria around motorsports in America right now. And mm. uh, it's pretty evident everywhere you go. And maybe that's a lot of things, right, with the reopening and that sort of thing. But it's it's really a stark contrast to what it was, you know, two, three years ago when you sit in these rooms with people that are decision makers and their entire the way they talk about the sport and what's happening in the future and what they believe is going to occur is entirely different than what we had three years ago. What do you hear some of those decision makers saying when they talk about motorsports? Like what gives you that positivity, that encouragement that it's heading in the right direction? Man, I think we're just figuring out things. I think we're figuring out how to do it cheaper. We're figuring out how to do it more efficiently. We're figuring out how to, you know, the roadblocks to so many of the problems we were fighting 
three years ago in terms of this sport were, you know, broken through, through the pandemic of just being like, you know, everything was on the table, right. Of how to go racing. And I think you saw that in F1, you saw that in NASCAR, you saw it in IndyCar, you saw it in grassroots racing, you saw it in sim racing and how you could link that to real world racing. And I think that has really opened the door for enthusiasm about, okay, wait, you know, what we were doing for 30 years that we couldn't seem to fix and we couldn't solve and we couldn't figure out how to do it cheaper. And we couldn't figure out why it was getting more expensive and why, you know, sponsors weren't paying attention and we couldn't get all this stuff solved. You literally through the pandemic figured out, wait a second, we can do this entirely differently and garner more interest or even the same interest. And I think that is really changed the tune of what's occurring in the motorsports right now. I said F1's having a moment in America, which it is. But to me, that is motorsports having a moment in America because I have been a huge believer over the last decade that one of the, the biggest issues through the early 2000s and the 90s was that racing series had an idea that their biggest competitor was the other racing series. Mm-hmm. What it wasn't. The other, your biggest competitor for attention was other sports. And what we've learned and I think has occurred here in the last three, four years is all these racing series saying, wait a second, if you're doing well, I'm doing well because think about this. If someone who's 25 years old, like that bartender we met in Wisconsin, who suddenly (laughs) has become an F1 fan, is an F1 fan, I have a far easier chance of making her into a NASCAR fan than I do that someone that's never watched a race, has never been interested in a a motor race, and is a football fan. So to me, that's a rising tide raises all boats. That's the situation we're in right now. And so I love seeing F1 have the popularity it has. She she became an IndyCar fan because of F1. Now we got to get her to NASCAR. But the thing is, that is something that just wasn't happening three, four years ago. And it's really cool to see. Yeah. And I should have prefaced all of this by saying that Parker and I did perhaps enjoy a libation or two together uh, across the street from our hotel uh, that we were staying at when we were covering Road America. And the Drive to Survive and F1 discussions did come up with, with some of the locals. And when I had you on the podcast last time, Parker, we talked about that moment that America is having with Formula One and because of the Netflix Drive to Survive documentary. And you touched on it there, but kind of branching off what you just said, what's the sales pitch for somebody who's gravitating toward motorsports, F1, and then, you know, IndyCar is sort of similar to F1. What's the sales pitch for telling somebody who fell into it through Drive to Survive Formula One, hey, here's why NASCAR is cool. If you like that, even though this is different, here's why you should like NASCAR as well as F1. My pitch is always that if you're enjoying that, biggest form of that in America is NASCAR, right? Then the other side of it is just for IndyCar. I say, Hey, have you seen the 500? Like the fastest cars in all of racing, you want to see the fastest stuff. And so I find their little identifying factors. And for NASCAR, normally it, to me, it's like, look, this is the biggest form of motorsport outside Formula one. It's not far behind. Here's why, here's how big the teams are. Here's how much money we spend, so on and so forth. Here's how many people watch. And you're going to see something really exciting. And you got to, you know, remember, it's not what you think of what NASCAR was and stigma. This is not that this NASCAR is this is America's shining light of formal or motorsports. I think a lot of times you have an easier time explaining that because they you can relate it to what they're seeing F1. Maybe I'll take a driver and say, hey, you like Max Verstappen. Well, Max Verstappen and NASCAR is X or you like Lewis Hamilton. Oh, Lewis Hamilton and NASCAR is X or like you find those relations Hmm. And to get them involved and to say, hey, these, you know, this is a really awesome sport. Um, but really what you're watching there is the same sport over here. So you just can have more of it. And I think that helps. You know, I, I do find an interesting thing that occurs with the Formula One enthusiasm is that a lot of times maybe they are not fans of Formula One as much as they are fans of the reality show of Formula One. <laughs> um, which, hey, look, I am too. I The first racing I found was Formula One. That was my first love of motorsport. So I understand the allure. I understand the draw. And I was converted to being more of a NASCAR fan or vice versa, you know, maybe equally as I, my career went on and I was kind of looking at how I was going to continue my career driving. But I, I think when you, you talk about that pitch, it really always boils down to me being like, so you like motorsports? Let me show you way more of it. That's really the base of it all. So not to put you on the spot, but I'm curious, like, you're, I think you're right. Some of them aren't necessarily fans of Formula One, they're fans of the reality show. So if you have somebody say, well, I like Max Verstappen. I like whatever archetype among the drivers, Max or Lewis or <laughs> whoever, like who is the Max Verstappen in NASCAR? Is that, I mean, to me, I don't know. I, I would probably, the first one that comes to my mind might be like Kyle because of just hell bent on winning and not caring about anything else. Would that be the parallel there? I'd say easily a Kyle Bush, a Kyle mm-hmm. Larson, or even, uh, you know, even like a, 
funny enough, would be like a Tyler Reddick in some respects. I don't know. He huh. kind of reminds me in a lot of ways, just the way he drives and that sort of thing. He's not quite in the equipment to be in the same position, but uh, I could see that being related. I, I hate to like name names, but I, I think you can find those related racers because racers are racers. I tell people all the time, well, they're like, well, the best racers in Formula 1. I was like, no, come throw Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton in the stock car at Road America. They're going to have a hard time. Yeah. <laughs> like, Chase Elliott's probably going to whoop him, right? Yeah. And vice versa. You throw Chase Elliott in a Formula 1 car, he's going to have a hard time. I like to say them all, like, look, the funny thing is, it's like baseball and basketball. They both use a ball, right? Or baseball or basketball and football. They both use a ball, but you wouldn't say the skills crossover directly, right? Yes, if you're a great athlete in football, will you have an easier time possibly being a good athlete in another sport that involves the ball? Yes, but you would have to go to work. Michael Jordan going over to, to baseball, right? He would have to go to work really hard to become a great baseball player. It's the same thing. If you're, you've seen it with Jimmy Johnson, if you want to switch the tight, you know, what you're doing, the level of dedication you have to have to be successful in any form of motorsport right now means that you have to become so specialized in what you do there that it is a rebuilding process to switch to another one. So that's another part of it to explain, but that's kind of in the weeds. One more before we, before we move on from the esports iRacing. Were we on esports still? <laughs> or, yeah, well, I guess we'd sort of moved on to F1. And this sort of combines that with going back to esports and iRacing. The tweets this week, I saw Lando Norris was involved. Yeah, so... Uh, Logitech uh, did a deal with McLaren and, and Lando Norris and William Byron where they wanted to do like a pro-am sort huh. of event. Um, and I met the McLaren esports guys last year when I went over to London for that esports conference and spoke and got that tour of McLaren and, and met guys who works on the esports side, least in McLaren. And so they just reached out to me one day and said, hey, we're doing this event. Could you possibly make it? Blah, blah. You, you know, didn't have a ton of information, but I was like, hey, when McLaren asks, I say how high. So <laughs> what do you guys want? <laughs> so they were my favorite for one team growing up. And so it's really cool to have them reach out and ask me to do anything. And so, yeah, it was sort of a team thing. So it was sort of a couple real, three real racers with three sort of Twitch streamers and YouTube people and ASAP Fergie was in it. And it was team Byron, which is William Byron versus team Lando Norris. Okay. And I was on William Byron's team and we crushed them. We won <laughs> Dates. William and I got the tandem at Daytona. We crushed them at Daytona. Felix Rosenquist was on our team and he was awesome at Monza. He had us all cleared by easy eight tenths to a second in the uh, Delara IRL one, which is that crazy Delara thing that they made for iRacing and then oatmeal car. And then I was <laughs> running second in the Monza race. I got around Lando Norris, which was like the greatest moment of my entire life. I was like, Oh my God, I passed Lando Norris. He had his fish third at, you know, the last F1 race in Austria. And I just passed him in an oatmeal cart, Monza. I did no practice. Run second, and I got wrecked by a lapper, but ended up finishing seventh. But we ended up winning the whole thing. Uh, so Team Byron was awesome, and uh, it was a really fun. It was actually it was a really short, condensed, but fun event. And I was like, hey, this was cool. I hope they do this more often. Well, I guess you can yeah. kind of claim like home track advantage if you beat him at Daytona. But yeah, if you pass Lando at Monza, that's you might be ready to make that move, man. That's I fun. might. Hey, look, I qualified. I think third or fourth. And I was like, well, on the start, I almost had him into one. And I was like, if I make this pass, <laughs> mate, if I make this pass, I am like, just going to be on cloud nine the rest of the day. And I'm calling I Zach Brown and I'm saying, look, I just yeah. passed your leading F1 driver. We need to talk. Give me a <laughs> shot, man. <laughs> so yeah, I might be, uh, I might be a little old for that dream but uh i've still got i still got like nine or ten years till i hit peak stock car driving age so according to david smith our buddy motorsport analytics so i still got time over here that's right that's right even though you've just crossed the uh, 30 threshold uh oh, still God. still a ways to go over here and and let's bring mm -hmm. it back to uh domestic motorsports discussions not quite nascar yet i want to start with sports cars so the imsa WeatherTech sports car championship series parkers head to lime rock and I know that track's always special to you because you're a Connecticut native. And of course, I would think that's certainly in the top two or three Connecticut motorsports venues. But this year, especially special as IMSA comes to this historic sports car venue because Lime Rock was sold in April to three general partners and a group of private investors. And I believe that group also includes one Parker Kligerman. So it does fill us in on uh, everything that transpired there with Lime Rock. There it is. Owner. The, uh, the owner <laughs> hard card for Lime Rock Park. I love it. Oh man, that is cool. Um, yeah, Lime Rock 
is special to me. It's the first place I ever saw a race car back in probably 99 or 2000. My, my dad had friends who lived up there. So we went up for like a weekend and part of the, you know, the deal was I got to go to the racetrack and see racing. I saw the LMS series and Trans Am and it was the coolest thing ever. And then that was the first place I drove a race car when I drove a Skip Barber car. First place I won in a race car. And so it's always been special to me. A friend of our family was one of the partners, Charles Mallory, putting together. So we'd love to have Parker involved uh, if he's interested. And so I, re- you know, it was sort of like, okay, this is cool. All right. You know, racetrack ownership, not sure about this, but, <laughs> but uh, in the end, you know, I, it was a really cool opportunity and there's amazing people involved and they're in, you know, when I saw the plans and what they want to do and I, you know, got the wheels turning, I'm like, oh yeah, you know, we really, this is uh, something that's important to Connecticut. It's important to motorsports. It's one of you know, the most historic racetracks in America. You know, what an amazing thing to be a part of. And I think I, I own basically like a blade of grass somewhere on there, but uh, it's my blade of grass and be kind to it. When you go to the IMSA race, hopefully many people come out, but more you know, than just that, it's just the idea of being a part of this group that's, that loves motorsports, that's trying to, you know, set motorsports up for the future, for the next couple decades and be in my home state of Connecticut. So it's cool. I'm learning a lot. I'm learning a lot from all the people involved. And, you know, I think uh, we're working on some really, really cool things. uh, I think over the next three, four years, you're going to see amazing improvements and, you know, just additions to Lime Rock. And hopefully one of those involves something very near and dear to my heart that we'll see if we can make it happen. We also had FCP Euro, which is a great uh, Connecticut company that races in IMSA right now in the Michelin Pilot Series. Uh, They sell basically auto parts for uh, Euro, you know, centric cars. They came on board as a partner with the autocross track, which we redid uh, in the skid pad and sort of the SCP Euro proving grounds. And they, they signed a long-term deal and going to be a part of Lime Rock for a long time to come. So that was really cool to see just right off the bat, bringing in a great, you know, motorsports focused Connecticut company that's growing incredibly fast and, uh, you know, get them a part of it. So I hope to see a lot more of that in the future. Yeah, that's great to hear, especially when you're talking about all those capital improvements. Certainly helps to have that kind of support corporately involved as well. Uh, So the track's in its 65th year, historic venue. Um, You know, just tell us more about the your role there. I mean, I I, I'm sure that you know they've got you very much monitoring that blade of grass, but um, (laughs) beyond that, like, are you involved in like weekly calls, monthly calls? Like, how do you get involved with the ownership side? So I would say I'm more on the advisory side uh dickie regal and and charles delana uh charlie delana are you know sort of the heads of running the day-to-day um and then skip barber is still involved i uh you know i think it's sort of when you look at the group of investors everyone sort of brings a little bit of something right um Mm -hmm. that's unique to them for me i would say i'm i'm easily the youngest involved and also you know the probably the most connected to nascar and that sort of thing. So you could, you can kind of delineate my connection and my role in that sense. Um, and I think there's nothing required for me other than, you know, I've been active in trying to bring opportunities to the partnership to say, Hey, look, we can do this. We can do this. I know this person, this person is interested in talking, you know, these guys are interested in talking. So I think it's, uh, it's more of an advisory side of things, but it's been fun to work with them on a couple of different projects just to, you know, see if we can, bring more fanfare, more get more people to rise. It's there get more people excited about what's happening in Lime Rock. And hopefully, as I said, something pretty big uh, that we're working on that we'll, uh, we'll see. I actually have a call with about today that could be really big, but we'll see. We'll keep yeah. an eye on that long-term. I got to keep that under wraps. Sorry. Understood, understood. No, it's yeah. good to have the hints. You know, maybe short-term you can give us a little bit more because as I mentioned, IMSA's racing there, GT cars will be there and you are pit reporting yeah. from the track for us. So my question, Parker, is of course, you know, Tony Stewart just did like the first live green flag interview, I think, during a race on national television. I would think that, you know, being a, a minority investor in Lime Rock, this is your opportunity as a pit reporter. You can do whatever the hell you want during the Simpson race, right? So I don't know, maybe you could just go out on track or stand over that blade of grass that you're supervising and just like report during the race with cars that. whizzing by you. You've got clout, man. That. You're right. Where, yeah. where can I not go? I mean, where could I go? I mean, maybe I'll, yeah, I'll even go to just an area that's completely off limits for most people and just be like, no, no, no. This is my blade of grass. I stand here. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I got to think about that. What cool thing could I do that I could get away with? We'll, we'll see. I, that's, you've got the wheels turning. Lime Rock is cool and the instant GT guys love going because it's a, they call it a bull ring because it is, man. It is a yeah. tight, 
road course that in a lot of ways is high speed at the same time, super tight, both obviously all all but one corner left hand or right handers, and it has a jump. Now they don't use that; they'll use the uh, chicane. But I mean, it's it's an intense track, and I just think that they all love going there because it's like no holds barred contact, moving each other away. It's their version of Bristol for the IMSA sports car. So I I love it. I I think one of the the coolest things about Lime Rock was I was standing there last September filming Proving Grounds, the last episode of Proving Grounds, and it was fall and the fall like foliage was occurring and it's in sort of a valley, right? And it's a park. It's a, it's a real beautiful park. And I just stood there and I was like, this has got to be one of those beautiful racetracks in America. Like you, you would come here just to hang out, whether it was racing or not. And I think that, you know, that's something that I hope a lot of people, you know, start to figure out about Lime Rock with this new partnership, the new group, a lot of the things we're doing, marketing efforts, that sort of stuff. Come out, see the IMSA race, see some of the other events, because I think you'll realize it's like one of the most beautiful places just to hang out and watch race cars. Yeah, that's really cool. I hope to get there someday, especially now that you've kind of given me a little bit more details about it. I didn't know it was called like the bull ring of sports car racing. Is that why the only GT cars run there? Like the prototypes don't run there? Is that sort of the reason? Okay. Yeah, yeah we used to have, per- so the prototypes, the last time I think prototypes came would have been probably the early 2000s, maybe um, when ALMS came there. But it's really tight, you know, yeah. for them. And it's, I think you still could, but I think for the GT cars put on the best show, I'll be honest. Like it's uh, every, I remember two years ago or three years ago, I was there for the IMSA race and the, the Ford and the Porsche, the Ford GT and the Porsche has gotten like a duel late and they literally did a bump and run. And I was <laughs> like, here's a Porsche 911 GT3 RS doing a bump and run to a Ford GT. Like where else do you see this? Honestly. Yeah. Uh, I was like, that's $2 million race cars hitting each other. So it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. Very NASCAR-esque as well. We can shift into the NASCAR part of our discussion here, Parker. You know, you texted me about a month ago to give me a heads up on this really cool sponsorship that you had on the truck recently that you run in the uh, the Camp and World Truck Series. And that is the Fast.CEO sponsorship that you had. And you told me a little bit about this. I'll give you the opportunity here just to tell all the listeners what it's about. I know it's there's Silicon Valley involvement. They raised, I guess, what it would be like nine figures with uh, some, <laughs> some prominent venture capitalists. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and then they were on your truck at Nashville. No, Nashville. Nashville. Okay. They were on yep. your truck at, yep. at Nashville. So, and this was their first venture in motorsports. So, you know, yes. give us the background a little bit on how they got involved. I would say this has been an eight, 10 year journey for me. Wow. <laughs> so, Obviously, Twitter is my favorite social media. If anyone who follows me knows, like, that's where I'm most active. It's where I've got these followers because I'm most active. And about, I'd say, eight years ago, 10 years ago, I realized there was, like, these different factions of Twitter. And one of them was tech Twitter, which was, like, all these Silicon Valley tech startups and startup world. And it just I became fascinated by it, right? And the speed at which these companies go to market, that they scale, that they can test and then iterate and then redesign things. And it's just amazing to have watched over the last 10 years. And a lot of of that was just basic business interest. But then, you know, I started to make relationships on Twitter with some of these folks. And at times it was always like, man, I wish I could get these guys involved in racing, like motorsports. Some of these companies, they would just, they'd be blown away and it's a great fit for them. And they're doing, you know, digital marketing. They're doing this type of marketing. I'm like, you could get them involved in motorsports. I think they would really appreciate it. You know, there would be serious business sense behind doing it. Um, and we've seen some, you know, tech companies dabble in motorsports, but it hasn't really, I've always been frustrated with that. It, they've sort of disregarded motorsports at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and about a year ago, I was just on Twitter one time and I saw this company pop up from someone I follow called Fast Checkout. And really they were just called Fast. And I was like, well, first of all, what is its name? How did they get that? That's amazing. And then I saw what they did. And what they did was they facilitated one click login and one click checkout. Uh, across any website on the internet. And I have always, like for the last two years, if you talk to my, anyone in my family, girlfriend, like I would rant and rave about filling out forms on the internet. Like I can't stand it. <laughs> and literally they solved that issue. And I was like, what in the world? This is amazing. They're called fast. So I made a relationship uh, on Twitter. Them just followed and said, this is the coolest thing. I love the name, blah, blah. And at the same time, I made a relationship with CEO, Dom Holland, who's founder and CEO. Uh, who's an awesome dude. And so we just started some conversations. I reached out on a cold DM one time and said, Hey, I'd love to chat, see what your plans are. How can we get you involved in motorsports? Your name makes total sense. And I love what you're doing. 
And so that started a bit of conversation here and there, and then not, but for, you know, so basically a full year past that time, uh, Dom hit me up one day and said, all right, we're ready. What are we doing? You know, how are we going racing? And so that's when Nashville came together just a couple weeks before. And it was really cool. Dom came out to the race. He loved it, had a great time. We went out in Nashville, had a good time. Um, and I think they got a huge response. They, they sell these $5 hoodies with fast on it. And my post after the race basically went viral, ended up on Reddit. We sold like over 3,000 $5 hoodies in two days. So it was pretty crazy. I think that they had such a great time. They saw the power of motorsports, how it relates to their brand, their name, the, you know, the business sense of, of, of the brands they're trying to work with. And I think uh, hopefully we can get them to you know, do more in the future. But it was, uh, it was cool. I had not done that, right? I hadn't seen a tech company come in from Twitter and all those things. Uh, so it was overall, you know, it was just a really cool experience to be a part of to have a bit of success. Although I wish we were a little more successful in the race itself. I think, you know, at least on the marketing side, it was a huge success. I, I hope, you know, I hope we can do more in the future because it was so cool. Yeah. And it's a great kind of Cinderella type story as well. The way it started that, you know, you go from eight months ago, just interacting on Twitter, singing DM to they're actually on your truck. It reminds me, Parker, a little bit of, you know, James Hinchcliffe has this Genesis sponsorship, which I think he said pretty much started the same way, just like a cold DM was sent. And a few months later, <laughs> boom, there it is. Like, is this evidence that maybe teams or drivers should be just be more aggressive, proactive about just trying to get in touch with Silicon Valley and progressive tech companies who are engaged and, and active this way in social media? Yeah, I think absolutely. I, I think there's no problem with that. You know, I think the, the funny thing is if you look at the last like what, five, six years, the business barriers and the, the way people conduct business is entirely changing at a rapid rate, right? Yeah. There's no, you know, you look 10 years ago and it was a marketing guy that did this and then do another marketing person and it went through hierarchies and all this stuff. And I mean, this deal came together because me and the CEO just tweeted together. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> there was no one in between, right? Like this, like this is just us tweeting. I think you're going to see that more and more often. You know, it still takes professionals to eventually come in, you know, so I'm on the marketing side and help facilitate and activate and, you know, run the programs that you're trying to do. But at the end of the day, it's people that are going to make these decisions. It's people that you got to get interested on the racing side. Uh, or it's people on the, you know, the, the company side that have to decide this is a good thing to do. The, the driver or, you know, the team owner or whoever it is should be an integral part of that conversation. And I think more and more we're going to see that. And, you know, that's just sort of where the world's going. It's, it's less formal, right? It's like, it's totally, it think, you know, people just want to do stuff. They want to do it fast and they yeah. want it to happen. They want to see a result and they want to, you know, continue doing it. And that's just the way the world is. And you got to adapt with it. And I, I like that. I, I'm that way. I'm like, man, if we can make an intro, get something done, see a result, move, you know, move on to the next one. That's my style. So I love that. And I think it's, uh, it's a cool time to be a part of that. Yeah, flattening out that bureaucracy and sort of eliminating those layers, those gatekeepers in, in a sense is, that's a good thing if you're pitching motorsports sponsorships. I like that. Oh, yeah. Good, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and another good thing about motorsports these days, NASCAR in particular, is it seems as if, Parker, like costs are coming down. The last time I had you on was right after uh, the dirt race at Bristol with the truck series. And we were talking then, and that kind of spurred this idea that we, I definitely wanted to revisit this hear about how low the costs were for your truck team this season to compete. And I know there was a lot of reasons for this. It was, you know, the, the engine deal and the way they've kept the equipment static. And I know that, you know, you, you were at the same hotel in Bristol with NASCAR president, Steve Phelps, and you guys had a, a pretty extended conversation about how this has worked for your smaller team, Henderson Motorsports, and being able to be competitive and compete in a, a lower cost way. And you, you told Phelps like, hey, I'm complimenting NASCAR for making this more efficient, more cost effective. As much as you can tell on the podcast here, give us like how that economic kind of picture has changed, particularly in the truck series. Man, I, yeah. So first of all, I applaud that. So that was really a genesis of our conversation between myself and Phelps just to say, hey man, like this is working. Like yeah. we're seeing it in real time. This is awesome what you guys have done. I think some of it's by design and some of it's not. You know, when you look at the truck series, we have not changed the vehicle design in many years, right? So at some point, the information flow sort of becomes saturated. The you know development becomes so minute because at the end of the day, nothing's really changed. Yes, there is stuff we change because the tire changes or the you know the tracks are changing that sort of thing. But the general design, 
the truck itself has not changed in many years. You know, we run chassis that are 10 years old at Henderson Motorsports and we're competitive. The truck I finished eighth with at Bristol in the dirt. I mean, that's a Turner chassis, I think from 2011. So like, you know, that's just like, that gives you an idea. (laughs) It's amazing. So three years ago, four years ago, when we went to the racetrack, you could not go without under, you know, to be competitive, you could not go even with us being a small team going part-time under 75 to a hundred thousand dollars a weekend between the engine deals, the, you know, what you had to do, you know, the personnel, the amount of time you have to track, so on and so forth. Right. With the Elmore engine coming in with, you know, during the pandemic, when we just practice, no practice, no qualifying, only a limited personnel, no backup trucks. It became very evident that, you know, that was maybe half <laughs> what we used to spend, right? You started to add it up and we found the efficiencies and going into this year, you know, it's a very similar case. Now, when we add practice qualifying, it is a little bit more expensive. You do have to have a couple more people, but it's definitely not what it was three, four years ago. And it's a considerable difference. Some would say 30%. I'd say some would say almost 50% for the smaller teams. Wow. It's a massive difference. And the reason we have seen 40 trucks show up every week, you know, trying to tempt these races um, within reason, some of the faraway ones probably not, but is that it does cost less and everyone's seen it. So I think a part of that also is, you know, the teams and the, the teams that build the trucks and such have become more realistic. The, you know, the personnel have become more realistic about what they're getting paid and it all compounds and eventually you end up in a situation where you're saying, wait a second, you know, we've made real serious headway here. Uh, and that's part of the, you know, when we go back to the initial part of this conversation, that's driven a lot of the enthusiasm in the sport. Like we're seeing in real time, things cost less because we found ways to do it cheaper. And I would say that the product in trucks is no worse or better than it was three, four years ago. You know, as a driver, would I want the, what we call built motors, you know, motors from the manufacturer that were from an engine tube group. Yes, because we ran Joe Gibbs motors and they were awesome. And I loved driving them and they, they were great. Does the Ilmore motor a little bit more finicky? Yes. You know, but guess what? We probably wouldn't be racing right now if we still had built motors that we had to go buy for 30,000 every week, you know, uh, rent for 30,000. So it's entirely changed that model and allowed us to keep racing and in a lot of ways hasn't hurt the product. So when you look at that and then you expand it out to saying, all right, Xfinity cup, how can we do things similar? I think far tougher, right? Far tougher situation, but you've seen it in Xfinity too. So why is there these teams, you know, Xfinity is a funny one because your big super teams, your cup teams are getting out, right? You're seeing them limit, you know, less and less of them. You're seeing less super teams. And what's happening is your teams that run off the prize money and a little bit of sponsorship, your Tommy Joe Martins, your Brandon Browns, your Jeremy Clements have moved forward up Hmm. the grid. If you look at it, right. Mm -hmm. Because there's less of those ones and they're becoming the norm of running in the Xfinity series. And because of that, you're seeing so many cars show up because, you know, a car that can run basically off the prize money and a little bit more Jordan Anderson is becoming competitive that they can then go to a sponsor and say, Hey, we're going to run, we're going to be a fringe playoff contender on a half or less of what those big teams used to spend. Yeah. Which with the prize money makes a financial sense. And so, yes, is it less, you know, is it less sophisticated teams and that sort of thing? Absolutely. But is it, be creating a healthier series in my opinion yes and so it's becoming what the Xfinity series was in the 80s and 90s right it wasn't cup super teams it was tiny little teams that ran on a similar schedule to cup but were doing it for far less and far more you know a little bit more grassroots so it was it was that was its offering so I think that's a cool thing um and then cup you know that is a hard place to to make, you know, you can't do what you did in the truck series. One, you're building a whole new car that's an entirely different technology right now. That's that that doesn't fit the truck series model of having the same thing for 10 years. So right, right. Uh, I don't I don't know, you know, cup is a harder one. That's the harder one to solve. But I think you'll still see, you know, with what they've done, they're gonna see massive cost reductions. And so, you know, initial after the initial buy-in. So it's uh I think that's why going back to the initial thing, we're just there's an enthusiasm because we're saying, wait a second, this is getting cheaper. You know, we can get people interested at this number just for sponsorship wise. It makes sense on the marketing side. Yeah. Value is lining with the cost. And that's a great place to be. 
Yeah, I guess uh, remains to be seen in Cup, but certainly that's this is the goal long term. That once they amortize those three and a half to four million dollar startup costs or whatever it's going to uh, take for Cup teams to switch over to next gen, maybe eventually check back in 2024, 25. We have these types of discussions. Going back to Xfinity, I mean, I, I was just thinking about this, Parker. It's a really interesting point you raise about how it's bringing those mid pack teams up. Because it's a market correction that's sort of the opposite of where things were 10 or 15 years ago. Because back then it was that the little teams couldn't compete because the big cup affiliated teams had the big drivers who, you know, they could go down and sell like a Kyle Busch or a Joey Logano or, or whoever and just say, look, we can put you with a cup driver and give you a discounted sponsorship. And sponsors would just go to the big teams instead of the small teams. Mm -hmm. And now, like, it seems like the opposite is happening the way you're describing. And especially when we're hearing that. Kyle Busch isn't going to race Xfinity next year. It's It seems as if it's a market correction that, like, if you go back 10 or 15 years ago, this is sort of what people wanted when, you know, should cup drivers be racing in the Xfinity series? It really was never, to me, about drivers. It was about cup teams having too much yep. influence and sway within the series. Yeah, and, and the funny thing is, I, I like to say the bottom's eating the top in Xfinity. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I think it's what it should be. And I know there's people that are going to say, well, then it's just ARCA. And I'm like, well, it's <laughs> not ARCA. Because at the end of the day, the prize money is massively larger than ARCA. You know, mm -hmm. a, a top Xfinity car is going to do seven figures in prize money. That is not ARCA. I'm sorry. I, I raced ARCA for full season. That is not ARCA. So, <laughs> <laughs> look, that is not, yes, is... You know, a Tommy Joe Martin's team, not as sophisticated as Joe Gibbs racing. Absolutely not. But is his team or is Brandon Brown's or Jeremy Clements really what, or JD Motorsports, should they really be sort of the template for creating an Xfinity team? Maybe, maybe a little bit higher. I don't know. Right. That's going to find, it's going to find itself, but it's sort of this natural thing occurring where you have the larger teams because they can't put the cup drivers in to garner the huge sponsorships they were getting through the mid two thousands and such are deciding it's not worth it to do it. Right. Mm -hmm, um, right. And I think that's just opening the door for these teams and naturally move up the grid. And then, then, then they get more TV time. Then they become part bigger part of the conversation. You know, we talked about Brandon Brown and Jeremy Clements all day long on, you know, NASCAR and NBC these days because they're a fringe playoff contender. They're fighting for that spot. And, you know, that wasn't the case four years ago. It was hard, right? When they were 18th and 21st and 23rd, you couldn't make that. You couldn't have those conversations. That was tough. So yeah. now they can go to their prospective sponsors and say, look, I'm going to be on TV. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm a part of the conversation. I think that really changes the, you know, the way things are viewed for that series. So yes, is there teams that are still spending 150,000 to 200,000 a race? Yes. Will there be for the next two, three years? Maybe. I don't know. But yeah. I think it's just something for everyone to look at to say, okay, is this more of a sustainable situation that we're, that's occurring right now when you look at the 12th through 20th place cars to say like, okay, something's happened here and maybe we need to look at this to be like, maybe that is the place to be and how can we make everyone be in that spot? And if you do that, it could be a really you know good spot. And to contextualize it a little bit more, Parker, in terms of like how things changed during the course of racing through the pandemic, obviously, like you said, for trucks and expansion, the equipment being static helped and the engine deal helped, but also the elimination of practice and qualifying for the most part, no longer needing backup cars or trucks. Am I reading it right that a lot of it, the reason it's particularly more competitive on the truck side is you can put money the smaller teams can reinvest their money into equipment instead of logistics or in, instead of like preparing trucks that 80, 90% of the time, you're never going to race anyway. You need a backup truck yep. before, but how many times are you actually going to use it? And that's just sort of like expending wasted effort energy on something that doesn't really factor into the competition. Yeah, no doubt. It's become more efficient. I know the for the, the health of the sport and for the tracks and the weekend, the event of the weekend, you know, it, it's not conducive as well to not have practice and qualifying. But I think we seriously need to look as a sport at races that we've been or tracks we've been going to for 15 years to say like why do we need practice qualifying right like maybe yes 70 percent do have it but there's a couple that's just like we don't need it okay that's a cost cutting thing right mm -hmm. like we, we just cut that out literally just ripped it off the top and you know maybe that weekend there in its place there's more of an arca event right or there's another thing happening that can replace what we were going to do practice qualifying so there's more on track there's more for the track to have content, right? For the ticket buyer to have something more, the TV, et cetera. So I think that's how we get smarter about 
that because, you know, if we just go back to what we were doing, I know, I think Kevin Harvick said this, if we just go back to what we were doing, what are we doing? (laughs) We learned like this makes, this works and uh, we can save so much money. We can make this better for everyone if we do this. So I'd be really shocked if we went fully back to what we were doing three years ago. And I think that also helps teams like mine. It helps these spinning teams. It helps everyone sort of look at this and be like, okay, it's not going to be as bad as it was. So we're, we're going to be better. And now how can we even make it better than this? Yeah. And just finish off this part of the discussion here and frame it in terms of you, Parker. I mean, I, I know you would intend to do eight to 10 races this year. I think you've already done six. Yeah. Uh, there were a couple of DNQs because like you said, it's been so insanely competitive, but that it is so much cheaper to race in the truck series now. Do you think you'll maybe get above that eight to 10 number? I mean, I'm sure you guys will do Bristol because it's right down the road from Henderson Motorsports, but are there maybe some more races? I'm sure you guys would do Talladega, right? I mean, because you're a two-time winner there. So are are there more starts in your future here because of this and because it's, you know, I don't know if you can give us like a ballpark number, but because like you said, the costs have been reduced 30 to 50% where tens of thousands it might've taken to race a few years ago are, are drastically less and maybe more comparable with, I think we were talking, or I threw this out there, like it might cost more to race like a super late model at maybe some (laughs) truck races, which is sort of insane when you think about it. Like one's a national series and one's more regional. Dude, super late mile racing is crazy. Yeah, right here, it's crazy in that sense. So for me, yeah, we DNQ'd Daytona, which was an upsetting. I, we, we've struggled the last couple of years to get a super speedway truck. They're really hard to get. They're really expensive. Yeah. You know, this is back to something like building a brand new super speedway truck is $150,000. That's just plain simple. You want to go to GMS, you want to build the best badass thing you got, you're going to spend $150,000. The problem with that is that if we buy, spend $150,000 on that truck, I always say, if you get me a truck that can at least qualify in the field, I can win the race. No doubt in my mind. I can find a way to win a super speedway race with anything, basically, if it gets in the field. So we struggled to get a super speedway truck. Couldn't justify spending 150 grand knowing it could be junked up to lap one, right? Uh, where we could take up that 150 grand and go buy two really good intermediate trucks and go run top five or whatever, you know? So it just doesn't make sense. So we found a, a truck out there that we thought was pretty competitive. We didn't have a lot of time to work on it, and it wasn't fast enough. Uh, <laughs> we missed the show, <laughs> which was the first for me. And I remember sitting there being like, well, obviously we're very disappointed, but I just kind of laughed. I was like, man, we can't qualify for the truck field at Daytona. We don't need to be in the race. So <laughs> <laughs> we missed it by like half a 10th or 10th or something. But I was like, what are we doing? Like, you know, we got to We got to go back to the drawing board. So Chris Carey would tell you the same thing. The Henderson's was like, that was, we just forget that move yeah. on. We tried to do something really cheaply and it didn't work, but we'll, we'll make it better for next time. So we will be racing. So for me, we'll go to Watkins Glen. We'll do Bristol. We'll do Taudega, Martinsville. We'll do Darling okay. as well. So yeah, we got five more. So wow. okay. yeah, we'll probably run the most I've run with them. Uh, Hey, it costs less. So, you know what, doing this schedule, just do the math. If it costs us, it used to cost at least over a hundred thousand dollars to do a race, you know? So if we run with uh, Sam Merwin that ran the Daytona road course for us, so if we look at that, we were spending over a hundred thousand a race. So doing 12 races, we're going to be well over $1.2 million this year, 30% of that, you know, we're still in the hundreds of thousands, but, or maybe less, you know, especially when we look at like doing the Bristol dirt or doing Bristol again, you know, there's no trap, there's no cost for us. We're right there. Sort of, you know, it all sort of adds up in the pie. So also we do own the engines. So, you know, what we used to be leasing engines, we don't see so sort of amortize that cost across. It's hard to say an exact number, but when you really look at it, we just know we're spending less because at the end of, at the, end of the year, we'll, you can look at 2017 versus 2021 and you're not going to have the same number. So yeah. <laughs> they're yeah. going to be entirely different. And I think that's just really impressive. You know, it's, it's amazing to see that happening. And certainly great for you as well to be out there getting that exposure and staying on people's radar because I know a driving career is something you're still interested in. So some new ownership, some new blood in the Cup Series. Justin Marks, who I know is a friend of yours, you know well, he's one of these sharp visionary guys that certainly are coming into the Cup Series a lot more these days. Your reaction, Parker, to his purchase through Trackhouse of Chip Ganassi Racing and from your perspective, as a 30-year-old, still aspiring Cup Series driver, as you look at this, might the dam be breaking a little bit? Because I know you've tried to make your way into the Premier Series of NASCAR in sort of an unconventional way. And I'll be frank about it. You're coming in without some of the advantages of other drivers who have sponsorship attached to them. And that's been an increasingly hard nut to crack the last few years. But I mean, maybe with the next gen model, maybe with 
new owners like Justin Marks coming in, who he's a disruptor. He wants to look at things differently. What does it mean for NASCAR globally, but maybe, you know, for you personally? Because to me, I see guys like this coming in as maybe advantageous for somebody like yourself. Well, I, I think you hope so, right? As a driver, you mentioned, you know, it has been tough. And I did not see my life playing out this way. And I feel like I woke up. I feel like I, I had this conversation with someone like a week ago, I was 26 or 27 <laughs> and I was doing the TV thing and getting part-time rides. And I was like, you know, that full-time thing will happen a bit. Like it's going to happen. Yeah. And then I turned around and suddenly I was 30 and I was like, wait, I haven't raced full time. <laughs> what happened here? Yeah. And the cup car I drove, I did really well in. And, you know, I remember at the time thinking like, well, I guess like, you know, that was the last shot. And then it just, you know, things change, obviously, whatever. But I think there's absolutely opportunities for drivers that are going to happen here in the next two years. I just think it's not going to happen as quick as maybe someone's hope, right? Hmm. There's still an, an increasing, there's still a massive cost next year to for all these teams to get into the next gen era. I think, you know, time is, is uh, something that just marches on and you can't stop. And for whatever reason, even though the analytics say that your best year as a stock car driver is 39 years old or ever 38, I still think there's, you know, obviously elements there, but I think for any, myself, anyone, you know, I've been looking at trying to go race some modifieds lately because my schedule started to open up, which is unusual. I think you just need to be winning. I've learned, you know, you yeah. just need to be winning in anything and driving anything and it will turn around. And I, I think four or five years ago, the funny thing was you, you were supposed to be selective. You were supposed to be, you were only supposed to go drive things you thought you could win in and that sort of stuff. And it's just funny how the, the stigma changes about that. Then it becomes, oh, you know, because one guy was successful. Now you can just drive anything. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah right, right. Oh, Ross Chastain got, jumped out of this back end Xfinity car, Cup car, went and won a Xfinity race. Oh, now the floodgates have opened. Anyone driving these could win. You know, like oh, okay, now it's changed entirely. So it's funny how that works. I think at the end of the day, you just got to be winning and stuff, and that will open it up. But in terms of what's occurring in the Cup Series of new owners, I think is great. I think Justin, he's awesome. I know you hear this a lot, but he's incredibly intelligent. He has an amazing vision for what he wants to accomplish in the cup series and in racing and motorsports in general. Uh, you know, he's involved in so many different facets of motorsports guys like him coming in that are trying to look at this through a different lens and say, you know, how can I do this differently? If we've always done it that way, how are we ever going to compete? Like I got to find a way to do this differently. They're the ones that are going to propel the sport into the future, right. For the next couple decades, Matt colleague coming in. You know, he is someone I just was talking to him at Road America and on the grid where I, I did tell him I was going to come drive for him full time next year. He gave me a fist bump. So we'll see if that happens. <laughs> yeah, no, <I'm> kidding. <laughs> There's so many more factors. But uh, I was talking to him and I was like, man, I remember you coming into this deal. What was it? Four or five years ago and in the Xfinity deal. And it was sort of just feeling it out and seeing how it goes. And, you know, Chris Rice was doing a good job sort of navigating things for him and, and making good decisions. And I was like, now you're a cup owner. Did you see that? He's like, I know, man, it's awesome. It's cool. Like, I love this. You know, yeah, I'm really yeah. into it. And he wants to make an impact. He wants to be here for a long time to come. Those, you know, it's so funny because what, a couple of years ago, we were wondering who's going to be those people? Who are going to be right. the owners that take this over? Right. And they showed up. And I think NASCAR has done a good job of, you know, marketing the product to putting, you know, the cost coming down, all these things. And I talk about that enthusiasm all the way to the beginning. Those guys are coming in because of that enthusiasm, because they see the opportunity. Michael Jordan, Denny Hamlin. Yes, is there going to be the same problems that we always fight in racing? Yes, someone's going to spend way too much money and someone's going to spend way less and someone's going to be in the middle and that's just going to happen. But if it's the numbers make more sense, then we've all won. And yeah. I think that's, that's opening up. And so for drivers like myself who have not had, you know, the family funding or that sort of thing to drive, which has become very popular here in the last couple of years. Yes. Will there be opportunities? I believe so. But I think another portion of that is that you're going to have to become, you're also going to have to become very creative on the marketing side and you're going to have to, time will be the biggest problem, right? So that, you know, you see a wave of young drivers, that sort of thing. If they have funding that excitement around them that can that can hurt you but we'll see i don't know i just want to go win a truck race this year man we haven't won one since 2017 i gotta get back in victor lane so we gotta make that happen if we can i think would be a great spot we'll definitely be keeping an eye on that and on that note like i know that i interrupted a workout here uh, as well so I, I know you gotta get back to that so you can stay fit and in shape for these uh final five uh truck series starts that you got coming up i also know i interrupted yeah. uh th this is one of your most creative periods of the day as well i think i saw you tweet <laughs> recently that 
early morning, like before 8 a.m. Unusual for someone your age. That, that's when all the creativity sparks in Parker Kligerman, right? Man, like 5.30 through 8.30 in the morning. It's my brain. It's, I don't know what it is. So coffee, <laughs> whatever, it just moves. But uh, that's also a dangerous thing. So I got I to gotta tone it down. <laughs> I got to tone it down, get focused. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I, I just want to, you know, I said my schedule opening up. One of the funny things that occurs, my girlfriend's over in Japan, right? She works on the Olympics for NBC. And so I literally have no reason to be home. So <laughs> part of my thing was like, man, I got to go race more. Like, I just got to race anything because I don't even want to be here. So I, uh, yeah, we'll see. Let's see if I can get a race. Call. All right. Well, th- there's your pitch for the next three weeks. Parker Kligerman has an open schedule while Shani is in Japan. So <laughs> oh, a couple of months. She's gone months. A couple of months. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. Well, no reason then you shouldn't be calling Parker or DMing him if you're a Silicon Valley magnet with some money Hit to burn. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Hey, man, I always appreciate the time and the insight. Thanks for being here. Awesome. Thank you, buddy. Thanks for having me on. Our thanks again to NASCAR NBC analyst Parker Kligerman for joining the NASCAR NBC podcast to run the gamut talking about myriad topics, whether it's esports, iRacing, the IMSA race weekend at Lime Rock Park, the economics of the Camping World Truck Series, the new paradigm of Cup Series team ownership, Always good to have a visit from Parker who brings a lot of insight and especially firsthand knowledge when it comes to the business side of NASCAR. Certainly very interesting news about how his team is able to get more bang for its buck in the truck series this year. Obviously, if they run a full season, it will still cost more money to be as competitive as aiming to run in the top 10 in 8 to 10 races a year. But if the budget for a championship contending campaign drops by even 25%, That's still hundreds of thousands of dollars, and that's truly a game-changing thing that's happening in the truck series, and that certainly bears watching as we see similar shifts beginning to happen in the Cup Series with Next Gen in 2022. As you probably heard, no post-race Road America podcast this week because of the holiday, but I am hoping to return to a post-race edition after Atlanta Motor Speedway, so stay tuned for that next week. The NASCAR NBC podcast is available wherever you download podcasts. Please leave us a rating and review to help spread the word. And any feedback you can send to me on Twitter at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR NBC podcast. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.